Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 54, July 2022. The Woman's Voice, a conversation with Patsy Rodenberg. Hello again, Paul Meyer here. I've been deep in the American South lately, uh, at least in my dialect coaching. A shout out to one of those projects. It's the off-Broadway premiere of Tennessee Williams' Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, with performances beginning July 15th, and the official opening at the Theatre at St. Clement's on West 46th Street, July 24th. Good luck to Matt D. Regatis, Sonoya Mizuno, Christian Jules LeBlanc, and the whole cast. For more information on the show, visit ruthstage.org slash cat. They've been using my The Deep South Dialect manual, of course, and I've been enjoying William's amazing dialogue. Here's a little taste of Margaret, Maggie the Cat, uh, giving the lie to the stereotype of the slow southern talker. She's talking to her cold and distant husband, Brick. Brick, you know I've been so disgustingly poor all my life. That's the truth, Brick. I always had to suck up to people I couldn't stand because they had money and I was as poor as Job's turkey. You don't know what it's like. Well, I'll tell you. It's like you would feel a thousand miles away from Echo Spring and had to get back to it on that broken ankle without a crutch. That's how it feels to be as poor as Job's turkey and have to suck up to relatives that you hated because they had money and all you had was a bunch of hand-me-down clothes and a few old moldy 3% government bonds. My daddy loved his liquor. He fell in love with his liquor the same way you've fallen in love with Echo Spring. And my poor mama, having to maintain some semblance of social position to keep appearances up on an income of $150 a month on those old government bonds. Great dialogue, yes. Good luck to you, Sonoya, as you bring Maggie the cat to life. Now, guess that accent. Last time I played this clip from the International Dialects of English Archive, Idea, and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. She raised us on a farm. I mean, she would butcher a hog and we have hog head cheese and chitlins and um, um, hog bog and hog mog and um, that's all the parts of the hog mixed together in one big pot. And then she'd make us um, clean the chitlins out and the things that come out of there, I'd never eat that again. If you guessed South Carolina, well done. It was Ideas South Carolina 12, contributed by Jacqueline Springfield, our associate editor for the Southern United States. Thanks, Jacqueline. The subject was born in Huger, spelled H-U-G-E-R, South Carolina, pronounced locally as Huji or Yuji, I believe. I'm sure I'm mangling that. My apologies. To listen to the whole sample, go to dialectsarchive.com, choose South Carolina from the Dialects and Accents tab on the menu bar. The speaker grew up both learning formal English in school and speaking Gullah at home from a very early age. The speaker currently serves as a storyteller, specialising in the Gullah dialect and actively uses the dialect as both informal communication and as an instructional device outside the Gullah community. If you haven't yet come across Gullah, often referred to as Gullah Geechee, you will enjoy reading about this fascinating coastal culture. Gullah is spelled G-U-L-L-A-H. 
And if you haven't yet tuned into my podcast with Jacqueline, it's episode number 43 from last August, and we talk about heightened language and black playwrights. Now, here's this month's challenge. Where did the speaker spend his formative years? So I was working on the restoration. Okay, I was, I was uh, skinny, and they would uh, lower me and a couple of other guys into a dungeon. Actually, yeah, there was the, it was air ducts, so kind of kind of dangerous and, and lots of fun. Now that uh, particular building, it's a church and it's fully restored. Get the answer next time. I was originally scheduled to talk with my old friend Wiley Longmore, but he isn't feeling so well just at the moment. Get feeling better, Wiley, and I look forward to a chat with you later this year. And so my guest this month is Patsy Rodenberg. Originally scheduled for next month, she is one of the preeminent voice and speech teachers, trainers and coaches of our time. So Patsy, how very, very nice of you to spare the time to be with me today. I'm delighted, Paul. I'm delighted to speak to you. And you're talking to me from your, your wonderful farm in Portugal this evening, right? Indeed, yes. With a barking dog. (laughs) Well, let's hope he's uh, kind to our conversation today. Yes. So your next book is going to be The Woman's Voice. Comes out in 2023, I believe. February next year, yes. Wonderful. Can't wait to see it uh, and read it. It sort of leads me to my first question before we get into the topics that you're going to address in your book. I wanted to say that you're generally acknowledged. Congratulations on an amazing career, by the way. You're generally acknowledged as one of the great voice and speech authorities. I think of Kristen Linklater, Cicely Berry, Catherine Fitzmaurice, Edith Skinner, going back further, Iris Warren, Elsie Fogarty, who founded your alma mater, the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama, ran it till 42. It just occurred to me as I was preparing for our chat today that our field is dominated by great women. It seems to attract women in greater numbers than men. And and those women succeed in greater numbers than men. Well, any theories on, on why that is? Oh, goodness gracious. I've got so many theories as to why that is. Number one, I think it's always been harder for women to speak. And I can only speak for myself. And in the book, I go into tremendous detail about how hard I find speaking. Hmm. And I think one goes I'm, in... One would never have guessed it. Well, <laughs> I was a very shy child. I found speaking very difficult, and I think I found speaking about important things easy. I was born in 1953. The feminist movement was unknown to me until the 70s. All I can say is that I didn't want to do chit-chat. I didn't want to do gossip. So I was very, I always say to my son, you know, I'm a nerd, Hmm. and I... I wanted to talk about important things and only men were allowed to do that. Hmm. So I investigated my voice. I I was sent at at a young age to elocution teaching, which was dreadful because, as you know, the whole of the voice is connected to the body and the breath and to one's presence and, and voice. But when I was sent to elocution teachers, it was just about speech. Yes. And it, it was catastrophic for me. So I've had this passion and then I suppose when I got to central school there were women doing voice more and it seemed to be what the women did 
which I think is sad. And I remember having a conversation with Cicely Berry about it. And she said, and I find this rather, I think it's it was true and I find it very hard. But she said that of course, powerful men, i.e. the directors at the time, didn't really want a man with authority on the voice hmm. in the room. So we were handmaidens, which I find, I don't mind being a handmaiden when I'm learning something because I think that it's a form of apprenticeship, but it got very hard when I started to know more than the men in the room. Yes. So I think she had a point. I was talking to Deborah Warner the other day and she was one of the first major female directors at the RSC. Yes. And of course she wanted me in the room. So it, it had a his, history really yes. behind it. Yes. You come across these people who speak extremely well and they don't see what the problem is. And they've normally gone to certain schools like Eton that when they have to speak in public all the time and they speak to their elders, they do not lose their natural voice. I believe passionately that the vast majority of people are born with the most amazing voice. Yes. The vast majority of people are born fully present. And for women to use their voice and be fully present, historically, has been very hard. Hmm. So that's obviously going to dominate um, the book. Yes, it, it does dominate the book. And I'm also writing about brilliant women, including my working class mother and Nana, who were so articulate in their own way, but was were not allowed a public voice. And I still work in the corporate world where the most brilliant women come into the room and they say to me, I'm much more interesting than I sound. Mm. They don't feel they have a voice. And quite frankly, I don't think we can save the planet if we don't have more uh, women leaders. Mm. I think this is a critical moment because we've all got into this very male force, no debate, no listening. We're still saying that in 2022. I know. In the 80s and 90s, women didn't think they had to do anything. And men didn't think it. They thought it had all been sorted out. And of course, it hasn't been. And we're now in this position where we have to show each other our humanity. We have to be generous. We have to be able to debate without worrying about having to change our mind. I'm doing a new course called Speaking Across the Divide. And the first thing everyone in the room has to do is say that they are prepared to have their mind changed. They're prepared to say when they were changed because that vulnerability within our strength has to be honored. Very little willingness to change at the moment in this great political divide at the moment, it seems. I, I was thinking back to your first big book, The Right to Speak, in when you talked about empathetic listening, uh, silence, in fact, uh, seems to be in short supply at the moment, and public discourse is shrill and angry. And so, you know, one of my questions for you is, how do we heal our society with empathetic listening? Well, I think we have to bring this work into the heart of education. We have to bring it to leaders. We have to take it right into the heart of government. The good news out there is that there's a lot of men supporting women. 
It's what, what is being revealed are the people who are so angry, not only at women, but anybody who has a different idea. Yes. I think the advantage of getting older is that you do see patterns, and I see that there is a change happening. People do want to listen. They're sick and tired. This all, the rot started, in my humble opinion, in the 80s, or the late 80s into the 90s, where bad behaviour and shouting and being rude to each other was sort of normalised and, in fact, rewarded. And I think people are fed up with that. But my point about, and I think I'm going to say this about Shakespeare, is that we have to listen and hear specificity of ideas. There's very little nuance anymore. Yes. There's just these terrible, bold strokes. I have worked through luck often all over the world in all sorts of cultures, Native Americans, Native Australians, you know, the Inuit, the Hopi. I've worked in India, Africa, all over the world. And at the base of every story told anywhere on the planet, there are the simple themes that Shakespeare talks about. Yes, We yes. are united. We are united in storytelling, but we can only unite when we hear something like Shakespeare, which of course I'm obsessed with, if we hear the detail of the text. Yes. And yes. at the moment, actors just shout it. And yeah. not all actors, but you just get a generalized storytelling rather than specificity. And it's in the specificity, it is in the detail of each other that we learn empathy. Yes. In speaking Shakespeare, you talked about a, a poster that you saw on the wall of an acting studio, I think in New York City. Uh, the poster said something like the words come last or the words are last. And, uh, and yet Michael Caine and many others talk about the important stuff in acting all happening while we aren't talking in between the words. Yet with Shakespeare, the words must come first, right? Is this a paradox or just a contradiction? It's both, actually. What Shakespeare does is he understands that under duress, we can become very articulate. As the child runs into the street, you are clear. He's not interested in the moments that don't contain heat and passion. I believe we find out what we think and feel by speaking it out aloud. What actors have to do is embody something. They have to be active and they have to discover the word as they say it. Suit the word to the action, the action to the word, all that. Shakespeare tells us how he wants it done. And is that the same message that you'll be delivering in the new book to the women in corporate positions and so forth? Yes, it's, it's about their voice and it's also about the need that so many women have had to mask what they say. They've, for thousands of years, we've needed to be liked by those in power. So it's very scary to speak the truth. I think what is remarkable for me about in Shakespeare's work is that the women are the speakers of the truth. They witness the things that are going on. He must have known, it might have been his wife, a series of very remarkable women who were not frightened, who did not mask their power by trying to be liked. And how amazing that he created these wonderful, amazing women, remembering that they were acted by boys. Yes. He entrusted those words to very yes. inexperienced actors, is what I'm saying. But you just have to meet them in a way. 
the start is that you encounter those words. And maybe maybe what he understands about acting is that we're watching transformation. We're seeing that transformation is possible in ensemble. When I found Shakespeare, I came from a household without books. My father was Dutch and didn't really read, but I did find an old battered copy of Shakespeare and I started to understand it. I didn't understand all the words, but I understood that he was speaking to us all in a way. You encountered him first as a reader then? Yes, yes. I mean, I knew, I knew that I had to speak it out aloud, I think. I mean, I was lucky enough that I started with Hamlet because, of course, for a nine-year-old, it starts with the ghost. Hmm. And we just sometimes forget, we get to know these plays so well that how amazingly theatrical there's this guard on a battlement terrified of a ghost appearing. You know, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's not high art, it's not literature, it's uh, fantastically exciting storytelling. Absolutely. And I do think that I knew that these women were saying incredibly powerful things to men, which I could I never saw my mother or my nana do, although they had wonderful minds. It was a great saving thing to find this. I bet you loved Rosalind and Benedict when you encountered them. Yes, I think so. Again and again, you know, Paulina, Hermione, these are extraordinary yes. constants, you know, somebody who was so frightened, but then speaking to a cardinal, speaking the truth to a king, you know, I think he's remarkable. Whenever I give a leader a bit of Shakespeare, male leaders as well, they understand it because it's about power and it's about misusing power, but also using it. And that's what women are very bad at. They will often take over a company and not dare to tell somebody that that is inappropriate. What else do you say in the book? I'm going to explain to women how they can change their voice and that it's not, it's repetitive and you have to practice it, but it's not a hard job if they just do fundamental work. I mean, I would call it craft which seems to be a very unfashionable word at the moment, but there you go. I talk about they cannot expect sympathetic listeners. So many women are so shocked that people don't listen to them if they mutter. In the theatre, most people come wanting to listen. But if you go into the boardrooms of this world and you're, you're not speaking out clearly, people will not listen to you. And I have to say that to women and I, you know, I never give a note to somebody unless they can solve it. But that's a very critical thing that you will not be liked. You know, you have to say to every actor, you can't expect every member of the audience to like your work. You've got to get over it. You've got no control of that. But women in moving up into very high positions are often shocked that they're disliked. That's something that I talk about. Yes. Presence is another of your successful books. I think it came out as The Second Circle in the UK. Incredibly in in America, it was The Second Circle, Presence in the UK. Yes. Can we talk about that basic concept and how it relates to the woman's voice? I used to call being present a state of readiness, a state of survival, a state of curiosity. I now call it Second Circle. Yeah, first circle, I used to call denial, not wanting to be there, you know, not looking out, 
And again, that's what a lot of women still do. In fact, after lockdown, it's been incredibly hard for not only women, but young people to make eye contact, to be in the room with people. So this is critical, but first circle is a, an implosion. You're, you're pulling away from the world and a lot of women get on very well being experts in a field or having all the knowledge in a company, but never having to speak it. And then they're promoted and they can't come into their presence. So the first circle is a sort of denial. Second circle is what I call presence, which is balance between listening and speaking. The men in a group will speak long before the women, generally. So women are much better listeners, but you've got to be a good listener and a speaker. If we move into third circle, which I used to call bluff, which is a position of pushing out your chest and being too loud and staring people down, you, you speak, but you don't listen. So it's, a, it's between the two places is being fully present to give and to receive. Women have a huge problem about being present in a room. If you watch most women on quite a high level, they walk onto a keynote to do a keynote or a town hall, and they'll start before they reach the podium. They'll rush to get it over with, and then they'll scuttle off. Mm-hmm. Some men do that, but it's rarer. It's much rarer. It's like I, I've got, I'm not worth listening to. I've just got to get this over with rather than coming on and breathing and looking at the audience. And I always say that this is counterintuitive, but if you dare to look around you and breathe, you calm down. It's not scary to look. It anchors you in the world. And just pausing, as you say, and looking in silence is a tremendously powerful thing to do, isn't it? So speaking and listening at the very same time is what you're talking about, I think. Yes. And breathing. And it's, it's, you can't do anything. As you know, breath not only powers the voice, it powers the mind, the heart, the spirit. We can't think clearly or we cannot speak clearly without breath. And again, most women, and some of this can, in the book I go into fashion and holding your stomach so that you don't look fat, you can't take a proper breath. Most top women say to me, but I have to wear my high heels because that makes me feel powerful. And I will say, well, I can teach you to use your voice in high heels, but it's 20 times harder because you've got to learn to breathe consciously low because if you wear high heels, the breath goes up into the chest and you can see women, their breath goes very high and they're panicking. And when that happens, the knock-on effect is that it, grips the larynx and the larynx then goes up and the voice goes up and doesn't come down. I was working with a a woman who is running one of the biggest law companies in the world, that if you can feel the floor and put slightly lower heels on, you will feel your breath, your voice will not be pushed down, but will just open up and have a greater resonance and you will have more authority because a high voice whether we like it or not, as a bit of research, but for most people, a high voice doesn't have the authority. Yes, which is perhaps why traditionally most of the hugely successful voiceover artists tended to be men. I think it's changed a lot now, but 
yeah there's yeah, a, a, pre, a predilection for for the for the deeper voice we tend to believe yeah. believe the voice or pay attention to the deeper voice but what about women have higher voices they're given anatomically biologically higher pitched voices i will just say to you yes the crossover though with men's and women's voices is much closer in terms of size of you know vocal folds and but there's a scale um, a range that a woman can get which is a natural position of open voice without pushing you're demonstrating it beautifully right yeah. now i mean you're the it, it role model if i that. do that if i'm now i'm now pushing down on my larynx to let it get lower i'm now going to push down and potentially damage the voice yes there was another guest who was referring to maggie thatcher who was who was taught to to speak with greater authority and i the person mentioned that she was speaking perhaps below her below her natural range and so forth. Well, she went from a very high voice to a very low voice by pushing down, but her voice got very tired. She was losing it. It's a very quick trick, but if we want to keep a healthy voice and we want to use our voice, we have to find its natural position. And we can only find its natural position when we're fully centered without tension in the shoulders or the upper chest, breathing low mm. and allowing the voice to find where it should be. Allowing, yes. Allowing it to be its full natural, efficient and economic self. So what do you say to those women who do speak lower than they should or perhaps employ a, a sort of creaky voice to achieve what they think is the effect? What's your advice there? Those voices get very tired at the end of the day. It potentially can be damaged. It's not a good thing to do, but it takes a bit of work. You know, I would look at their bodies and I would say, well, actually, your voice will be lower once you let go of the shoulders. When you, yes. when you allow the breath to go down, which means that you have to release your stomach. I often teach doing the wrong thing, I'll say to a woman, hold your stomach and try and breathe. And they can't. And I said, now try speaking and your voice will go up. So then you push it down and you're doing a double tension. You're, you're really gripping. Fighting against yourself. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it, it, but it starts with the, in the body and it starts with the breath and, the, and being present to those things. And then it's about freeing the voice. And, and people have amazing voices once their habits leave. And of course, what I talk about in the book is that it's not only fashion, but it's how we're rewarded. We used to hear richer voices from actresses in movies in the 40s, didn't we? There was Absolutely a... right. So, so what happened? I think something happened after equality. You know, I, I, I trained at, on the cusp of... the the laws that said that women were equal. And around the 80s, all the great feminists up to that moment had very powerful, free voices. And suddenly power was deemed about what you wear, power dressing, your makeup, and the voice was forgotten really. And that's partly why I wrote the book because I started to feel such an incredible interest from women to refine their power in their voice. I was hoping that perhaps there are some famous women speakers whom you admire that you haven't worked with and whose confidence you wouldn't be abusing if you held them up for us. 
as role models? They're not Western women anymore. I've worked with a few recently leaders, uh, African women, and their voices are incredible because they don't even believe they have the chance to equality. So what? there's no reason to please anyone, you know? Mm. Uh, I mean, a dear friend of mine who I'll be dedicating the book to, Alexandra Samath, who was a great Indian actor, first, I think, first Asian woman on the, the National Theatre stage, but her a Hindu classical actor, her voice was amazing because she said, it never occurred to me that I was going to be liked. So I feel that I, I hear it when I work with Indigenous people, the storytellers, the women are absolutely on their full natural voice. They're not encased in the way that I think Western women have become encased. I think that's one of the great ironies of the book is that the people who still understand the importance of telling incredible stories and the power of a story are not in our framework. In the book, I have a, a, a terrible admission to make, which is I just thought that we were ahead of the game, but we're actually behind the game. Gosh. Something you were saying a little while ago reminded me that you have worked very successfully with the criminally insane, child murderers and so forth, using poetry alongside their psychiatrists and so forth to affect uh, great change and, and redemption. Well, I use Shakespeare. Yes, we do voice work. But that's the extraordinary thing about Shakespeare, because even the most terrible person, we get to have a, a sense of their humanity through detail. I was just talking to an actor the other day, I was coaching him in LA, and we were talking about Iago, and, you know, Shakespeare can't produce somebody without having compassion for them. Marlowe can. I mean, Marlowe's The Jew of Malta is so obnoxious, but Shakespeare is being told to write a play about a, a Jewish character because Marlowe's just had this huge success. And he puts into his mouth one of the greatest pleas for compassion. But I was talking about Iago, and he talks about all those men that he knows have slept with his wife. Iago mentions a nightcap. And as we were working on the text and me asking this actor to really drill in and understand why that nightcap is so important. And of course, he realized that Iago has gone home and smelt another man's hair oil or cologne on his nightcap. Mm. So he always, even though you want to hate these people, and when I was working with Murray Cox at Broadmoor, this brilliant man who died in 1994, he said that Iago and Richard III were casebook studies of a sociopath. But within that, the understanding of somebody else's pain is there in Shakespeare. I remember being in Holloway. That's the woman's that's prison. Yeah, it's now gone. Thinking, my God, they've lost their voice in another way, a political way. And that might sound very obvious now, but to me in the 70s, it wasn't. And I thought, how interesting. I remember a very violent, very violent man saying, oh, you mean you can speak about it and not hit them? <laughs> and I, I think you probably knew he was shocking me a bit, but it was it was very moving, the idea that language can navigate 
And that's what that's what we have to do when we speak across these great divisions. We have to navigate with each other. Yes. We have to be fully present. We have to listen. We have to navigate. And of course, scene after scene of Shakespeare, people are in debate and dialogue. And you can't do that unless you're prepared to change. And I think in leadership, women are better. One of my legacies, I want to bring back real craft and ensemble to young actors so that they can serve these plays without having to generalize its real power, which is specificity. And maybe using my skills to encourage people to speak across the divide. Oh, that's certainly going to be your legacy. Your huge success, of course, is your stamina and your, and your work ethic. You just work harder than anybody else, it seems. You're always well, somewhere. You're always somewhere. You, work, you travel everywhere. You are so generous with your time. I'm considering even this little podcast, how nice of you to keep putting out the message like you do. I've had amazing mentors in my life. For whatever reason, and I talk about them in the book, and a lot of them are men. I don't believe women can do it without in, enlightened men. And I think you're an enlightened man and Shakespeare. So there are great men out there. We need to work together and, and that's, that's great. But I've had incredible teachers. For whatever reason, I've been lucky enough to be in the room with so many amazing people. And I was maybe maybe shy or clever enough to listen and hear what they had to say and not go into a conversation until I thought I had something to say, which... It's, it's so fantastic to hear that you say, like I am, I'm an incredibly shy person, but, uh, you know, we've made our, our living with the voice and uh, overcoming that, that shyness, perhaps, that disinclination to speak. And it's, I mean, I said at the beginning, and I think why poetry and Shakespeare is so wonderful for people is that that are f frightened of speaking is that it that it has a scaffolding and a form and it's not your words but they're important words and and chit chat and and I say to a lot of people some of the top leaders in the world that the thing they're frightened of is chit chat gossip which is good that, that there has to be a formality though a, a, a word in defense of small talk. I, did, I like you dismissed small talk. I hated to do it. And then I had David Crystal on and, and we had a wonderful chat and, uh, and he persuaded me, having analyzed chit chat, how actually important it is. It's more than just triviality. So uh, Yes, you're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. And I've got good at it. I've made myself. I can actually do it. Oh, I, um, I, teach me how, because I just cannot do chit-chat oh, and small talk. Just How do I do it? To, teach me. Well, well I, I, I try what I call it humanizing people. I stay present and you chat to the driver and you chat and you find out, you know, you do some chit chat and then you find a door and then they tell you something very big and then you tell them back. So it, I feel that it, again, it's a road into deep connection. Maybe it's connection I'm afraid of, huh? Well, no, you're not. If you're present, you are present. You know how to be present. And all I say to people, look, even if you're present, if you're one of those parties where they're bringing around champagne and things to eat if you're if you chat to the young waiter or the not so young waiter 
you get more champagne because they, they think, oh, there's that lady over there that talks to me. So it, well, I, I am very good with waiters. I will, I will, I'm very sympathetic to, to service people and I recognize yes. the very hard job that they do. And I, I do listen. I do look them in the eye and, and engage so them. So you and, can do it. I can see. do it. because You can do it. And that's, <laughs> that's the, it's just whether, I did get into trouble with my son because this is the sort of thing I can't bear. It's a, not a very pleasant side of me. And he got angry with me because I think I said to one of his friend's mothers, look, I'll talk about your nails for 15 minutes, but don't ask me to talk about your nails for two hours. <laughs> and I, that didn't go down very well with him, I think. But, but it's true. At some point you think, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Yeah, do the small talk and then let's get deeper, shall we? Yes. Well, let's see what we can talk, what, what, what we can find out mm -hmm. not in a intrusive way but you know i'll often say to a, a driver a cab driver london cab driver have you got an instinct about who you shouldn't pick up and suddenly they're off mm. and they talk about this event and then you talk about this and then i just find ways in that's what i've done and i suppose that's what you do when you teach you try and find a way in and and sometimes you, you get very lucky very early and, and you get a way in and you solve somebody's problem but yes. Uh, yes, you're right. It's it's. I find it difficult, but it's very important. And 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 you and I do do it, although we don't like it. I love where you pitch your voice uh, in volume. You are the role model, even if you were reading the phone book. That's very kind, but it's taken a lot of time. And and you you speak to me and not at me. I mean, that's the basis of great conversation. You're not talking at me, you're talking to me. Um, it's not too loud. I mean, and what do you do with clients who are simply too loud? Well, I analyze what they're up to and generally they're not present with the person. They're looking in those parties, you know, those people who are looking over their shoulder to see somebody, to see if they can find somebody much more interesting than you. And, and consequently, they're breathing beyond you. It's like when you go to the theatre and the actor is just shouting at you. They're speaking beyond the theatre. I hate loud actors. I just hate well, loud actors. I, was, I don't know if I'm going to be allowed to do it, but I, I thought for a moment this new edition, and it's going to be radically new, of speaking Shakespeare, would be called speaking not shouting <laughs> because yes. because I, I I've now got this theme in my you know you get mantras in your life and the mantra now is that if the tone doesn't match the text we can't really understand what's being said because exactly. our brain gets split yeah. Yeah. so you know I love you doesn't really work doesn't get it does it and we all at some point have gotten the the wrong idea that projection is all about volume well it, it certainly isn't is it no it's about breath and filling the filling the room is not about being loud but if you breathe a space if you look beyond if you look to the back of a room and you breathe there you'll probably take enough breath to fill yes. the space yeah you but, know but, I, I had a lifelong campaign as a as a voice and speech teacher to uh, free us from damn microphones that crept into our theatres, even tiny 200, 300, 400 seat theatres. They would put a mic on the, on the actor or floor mics. And it, we were just, our voices were being mediated. We weren't in control of reaching Absolutely. our audience. Absolutely, couldn't agree we, more. I'm on your side. I lost the battle, you know, but 
even little faculty meetings with um, perhaps you know 10 faculty on a panel and, a, and an audience of others of 20 or 30 in a, in a quite a small conference room the, the the people on the panel would pass around the talking stick as if oh god you know, know. but people asking questions from the audience you know, could be heard quite easily. And yet the people on the panel couldn't trust themselves to put down the damn microphone. Now, in certain corporate spaces, the acoustics in the room are so bad, they need something. It's all padded, it's carpet. It, but it, it, it does dehumanise. It, it puts a barrier. You're absolutely right, and I'm onto it. I'm going to... Someone else, something else is mediating our contact. I'm not talking to you, but I'm talking to you through an agent of some yeah. kind. And even if it's a very, very good PA system, even if the mic is almost unobtrusive, we still know that, that, that our conversation is being mediated. And I don't believe that it touches people in the same way. I mean, that's what's so wonderful about theatre. Of course, film and television can be wonderful, but the fact that you're in the room with somebody going through something and speaking to you it's is... Just, it's just magical, isn't, isn't it? Yeah, it is, absolutely. I got more audibility complaints when the show was mic'd than when it wasn't. Hmm. Because people are so confused about the levels, the where it's coming from, it's harder to hear. It's really, technology is not the great gift it's it has to be harnessed we found out that on zoom you know it's much harder it's much harder to communicate well on zoom yes i think we're getting better at it having uh, of necessity of course and you and i are talking on zoom today but um and it's a really lovely conversation i have to tell you so a, a new edition of speaking shakespeare and the woman's voice coming out in february of next year i cannot wait for either of them. And uh, I, I wish you all success with those. And thanks for being with me today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted to talk to you. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Patsy Rodenberg. To learn more about Patsy, please visit the webpage on paulmeyer.com devoted to this podcast. Don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at Dialect Paul. My guest next month is linguist Nick Enfield, and we'll be talking about his new book, Language Versus Reality, Why Language is Good for Lawyers and Bad for Scientists. Next time on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs>